I love worshiping with you guys. Like honestly, uh, I look forward to worshiping uh, here uh, more than I look forward to almost anything in my week. Just like you look forward to listening to the sermon, right? More than about anything else that happens in your week, you look forward to the sermon. Any amens? Any more amens? Any more amens? <laughs> All right, that, that may or may not be true. But this is what I believe this morning. I believe that um, God knows where you're coming from. God knows what you need to hear this morning. God knows your needs. I believe that God wants to speak to each and every one of us this morning. I believe that. Do you believe that? God wants to speak to you. And so I just, let's just open up our ears. Let's open up our hearts to receive whatever word that he has uh, for us. But he wants to encourage us this morning. Who are you anyway? Like, who are you? And opening with, with the big existential question, who are you? I mean, there's some ways in which we're all alike, and then there's some ways in which we're all different, right? Each one of us is kind of a unique and complex blend of identities. We're a whole bunch of different things all at the same time. Like, we wear lots of different hats, We've got different roles. We've got different titles that make us us. Some of those relate to uh, our, the relationships we have with others. Some of us wear the dad hat. Some of us wear the wife hat. Son. So some of us, are, 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 our identity is found in what we do, our jobs, engineer, teacher, Mechanic. We wear different hats um, that maybe kind of coincide with our passions and our interests, our hobbies. Gym rat, that's me. Few of you just gasped. <clears throat> no, that's not me. Handyman. It's not me either. That's some of you. Rough Rider fan. That's not me either. That's terrible. That's <laughs> some of us, it's, it's our identity. Some of those hats maybe are our, our, our history, where we belong. Mennonite. Anyone thank God to be a Mennonite in here? You get the dranica and farmer sausage. It's a good thing. Maybe you're Irish. We all have different hats that we wear, different identities that make us us. And my question is, what holds all of those things together? Is there anything that holds all of those things together? You know, when, when our identities are, are kind of fractured, we can have something called an identity crisis. You ever heard of that? You ever had an identity crisis? People have an identity crisis when maybe those hats change. You know, they, they wore that career hat and now that person is retired and they go through an identity crisis. Who am I really now that I'm no longer teacher or whatever? Maybe it's when the kids leave the home and you kind of take off that parent hat or that changes. You have a crisis. Who am I? Uh, now with, with the prevalence of these genetic tests where you can find out like what you are. Apparently, a thing now are support groups for people who find out they aren't what they thought they were. <laughs> they have support groups now for people that have find out through this that daddy actually isn't daddy. 
But, but then also for, for some that they went their whole life thinking they were Irish and hating the English, and then they actually find out they're more English than Irish. And it's just like, who are they? And they have this big crisis, an identity crisis. What holds all of those things together? Is there anything? Is there a deeper, greater identity? What is most fundamental to who you are? So we want to talk about this morning. You know, there's a chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. It's called the love chapter. You often hear it at weddings where Paul talks about all the attributes of what godly love is. And that chapter ends with a statement that many of you are familiar with when he says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and yet the greatest of these is love. Have you ever wondered why love is the greatest? He says, these are the three really important things you need, faith, hope, and love, and yet the greatest of these is love. Why? Why? Well, I think this is why. You see, a, a day is coming. Well, I mean, what is faith? Faith is putting your trust in something you don't see. But what happens when that thing you put your trust in, now you see? I mean, there's going to come a day when we are with God, and we won't need faith anymore. We're going to take off the faith hat. We won't need hope anymore. What is hope? It's, it's, it's the certainty of a future reality, the promise of a future reality. Well, when that future becomes present reality, we don't need hope anymore. We take off the hope hat. But love, love is something we will always do. I think it's for that reason Paul says, the greatest of these is love because you were made to love. You're always gonna love for all eternity. What is our greatest identity? Well, I I guess maybe the question is, what are we gonna do? And what are we gonna be? Not just now, maybe not just till next. What are we gonna be forever? If you go to the end of the Bible, the last book, Revelation, um, it describes, it has a vision of our future for those who know God through Jesus Christ. And that vision describes us as worshipers. In fact, that word worship is found more times in the book of Revelation at the end when it envisions our future. That word is used more times there than it's used in any other book of the Bible by far. We are and we will forever be worshipers of God. So I just want to suggest this morning that's what's most central to who you are. You are a worshiper. In fact, about 350 years ago, uh, some people wrote what was called the Westminster Catechism. Maybe some of you learned it if you grew up in an Anglican or a Presbyterian church as a kid. A catechism is just a document to help introduce people to the truths of the Christian faith. And the first question and answer of the Westminster Catechism was this. What is the chief end of man? In other words, why were you made? What is your purpose in existing And the answer that was given to that question is this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Which is another way of saying to worship God. You and I were made to worship. Created for that purpose. So this morning we're beginning a six-week series. We're We're gonna talk about worship. Now when I say that word worship, what do you think of right away? 
what you just did, right? So worship is singing. So bad worship is this. Okay worship is, I love you, Lord. Great worship is this. Oh, Jesus. I'm sorry. What is worship? We're going to find out over these weeks that worship is far more than we think it is. We're going to look at what it looks like to to live a life of worship. So turn to Romans chapter 12 if you have your Bible. Um, This this morning we're going to look at two verses. They're going to kind of be our, our foundational verses for this series. And they're probably the most fundamental verses on worship that we have in the Bible. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Here Paul is going to describe for us true worship. Because if there's true worship then there's apparently false worship. And if there's proper worship then apparently there's improper worship. We want to know what does true worship look like? Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper, say it, worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. All right, so he describes true worship here. That's what these verses are about. Now, that word, that English word worship, translates two different Greek words that we find in the New Testament. Now, the most common of those two words is the word proskuneo. It's not this word. Proskuneo is is a word that comes from uh, kind of a a root word that talks about, uh, actually, it's kind of strange, about the, the licking, a dog licking its master's hand. And, and it kind of became associated with kissing the hand of the one you honor, your master. I have a little dog now, Cooper. I don't love him, but he loves me. <laughs> and, 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 and he comes and he will want to, he, sh- he, shows, he shows his affection by licking my hand, by licking my face. It's terrible. But this is what he does. And so this is kind of where this word comes from. It was used to describe an attitude of the heart, an attitude of reverence. Jesus uses this word in Matthew chapter 15, uh, verses 8 and 9. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. They aren't worshiping. So worship isn't just words. You sung words. The singing of the words isn't worship. It's the heart from which they emanate. He says that is worship. Worship comes from the heart. It is an attitude of reverence for God. It is, an, it is a, um, a finding of great pleasure in God. In fact, that word uh, worship comes from the old English word worship, and it just morphed into worship. Easier to say. Worship is worship. It is the ascribing of worth to something or someone. So when we worship God, what we're saying is we are cherishing, treasuring, valuing God as, the, as of highest worth in our lives. 
That's worship, ascribing to God the greatest worth, the greatest value in our lives. So true worship comes from our hearts. It is this attitude of finding worth, of value in God. But it doesn't stop there. It expresses itself in the way that we live our lives. Worship is recognizing God's worth um, and then acting out the value that we see in God in all areas of our life. And so the second word translated worship is the word that uh, Paul uses here in verse one when he talks about true and proper worship. It's the word latreia, and that describes not just uh, kind of the, the attitude of the heart, but it expresses the, ex- the, the expression, the acts of worship. And sort of the Jews, this was a very common word. Now, Paul, Paul is writing to a church that's just a hodgepodge of everyone, because everyone was coming to faith in Christ. People from a Jewish background, uh, Greeks and Romans and slaves and masters and all these people were coming together into this one church that Paul is writing to. And so the Jewish people there, they knew this word well. When they heard that word, it's like you hearing the word worship and thinking immediately, nine o'clock, no, let's be realistic, 1045 Sunday, because nine o'clock's too early, isn't it? 1045 Sunday morning, coming here and singing songs. That's worship. When they heard this word latreia, it was synonymous with what happened at the temple, the duties of the priest, the prayers they prayed, the the movements they made, the sacrifices they made on the altar. That was latreia. That was synonymous with this word. He's trying to correct their notion, broaden their notion of what true worship is. What is true worship according to Paul? He says true worship is to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. To offer your bodies. Now it's interesting, he didn't say to offer yourselves. There could have been another word where he said offer yourselves. But he said offer your bodies. That's a word that describes the physical human body. Kind of an interesting choice of words for Paul to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why would he have done that? I think it's because, you know, back in that day, there was a real prevalent philosophy that had come out of Greek philosophy and it was making its way into the church, a way of thinking about God and life. That, that philosophy was called Gnosticism. Have you ever heard of Gnosticism? Some of you have. I want to talk a lot about it, but essentially Gnosticism said there's some aspects of life and the human person that are inherently spiritual, and there's some that are inherently unspiritual. So it, it was to think about the person and to think about life in a divided way. Spiritual things and unspiritual things. The sacred things and the secular things. And in Gnosticism, the spirit, the mind and the spirit were spiritual. They related to God, but the body, the flesh, food, sex, those, those physical things, that wasn't spiritual. That that didn't have anything to do with God. And so they compartmentalized their lives into spiritual aspects of life and then just unspiritual, secular aspects of life. And that had all sorts of consequences that, that Paul, often in his letters, he's trying to address people that have been influenced by this false notion of life and God. And then that manifested itself in different ways. It caused some people... To, to think of life in, 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 a, in part of it as, as spiritual and part as secular. Um, 
it, it caused some people to not want to have anything to do with, with the unspiritual parts of life. They wanted to live all of their life just in the spiritual and so they, they thought they ought not to marry. Marriage was bad. Sex was bad. It was, if, 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 you know, if you were a spiritual person, you shouldn't have anything to do with that. And so you had these people that, you know, the highest, vir- the highest value is to be like this chaste virgin, right? And so some people had bought into that. That stuff was unspiritual. Some people, um, they, they had the mindset that, that, all that all that aspect of life, because it had nothing to do with God, they, they could just do whatever. It was totally unrestricted. No in, inhibitions whatsoever. Marriage and sex and food and all of these things and, and wine and all that had nothing to do with, with the higher things, the things of the spirit, the things of God. And so they had these two very separate lives. The spiritual and the secular. Right? And the body represented the secular, the things that didn't relate to God. And so Paul comes and he says, what is true worship? True worship is offering your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. I think what, what Paul wants us to hear is this. Everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. What do we mean by that? He's saying that worship is not confined to one place, one time, one activity. Worship happens at all times, in all places, in all activities. Your office is a place of worship. The hockey rink is a place of worship. Your home is a place of worship. Your school is a place of worship. Your bed is a place of worship. He says all your life is a place of worship. True worship is giving all of yourself to God. Worship is our whole life. Now I heard of a a pastor who preach on this text and just to make his point, he stood in an offering plate for the whole sermon. And I tried that and I broke one and, and I just couldn't keep my balance in it. So, but, but that's the picture that Paul wants to paint here. Picture yourself standing in an offering plate. He says, true worship is the offering of our whole selves to God for his glory. Paul is saying everything we do, every act is pregnant with the possibility of bringing God glory you can bring God glory in anything if you do it for the right reasons. You can treasure God as the highest value in every area of your life. And so uh, in 1 Corinthians, let's see if we can get this up here. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, so whether you eat or drink, people were debating, what's the spiritual thing to do? What's the uns- should we eat this? Should we not eat this? Should, should we treat this day as holy and these days not as holy? And he kind of says, it doesn't matter. Guys, you're asking the wrong question. Everything has the potential to bring God glory. You're supposed to think of everything as worship. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything going to be an expression of the worth that we find in God. And so, I mean, we, we see lots of examples of this. And we'll talk about this passage probably later in the series. But he talks to slaves now. There's some slaves in the church. And he gives them some instruction. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And, and, and not because he thought slavery was good. Because, I mean, you, you live out 
uh, the, 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 the Christian principles and it does away with slavery completely. I mean, our faith shows us that everyone is of equal value and worth. And this is what he's gonna, he, this is what he's gonna tell them. He's gonna tell the slaves, you know that no one else sees you? No one else thinks your work is important when you're cleaning up the, 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 the dinner, all those plates and all those people you just fed, they didn't look at you, they don't know your name, they didn't thank you, and you gotta do this day in and day out? How hard is that? You're a nobody in the eyes of others. He says, but... Obey your masters in everything. Do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as working for the Lord. You're not working for your master. You're serving God, he says. You're working for the Lord, not human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So he's saying, I don't want you to miss this. When you're, when you're serving your boss, you're serving God. When you're serving your spouse, you're serving God. When you're serving your kids, you're serving God. It says, everything we do, we do to bring God glory. So what, what makes something worship is not what you're doing, but, but why you are doing it. Not only does that make everything spiritual, but that makes everything significant, doesn't it? If everything you do, you can do for the glory of God, if everything you do can bring God pleasure and bring reward from God, it makes everything significant. Everything is spiritual. Everything is significant because it can be done for God's glory. So worship has as its goal the glory of God in all things. So how do we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now we're living, I, I, I think he means more than just when you offer yourself, you're still breathing. You're not dead like the, like the bulls. I think what he means is, it, this, when you offer yourself, it's not just something you do once. God, I offer you myself. It's, this, is, this is an ongoing offering. Moment by moment, day by day to God. Offering your whole selves to God for his glory. And how do we offer ourselves? Well, he goes on in verse two. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Did you know the world has a pattern? The world you live in has a pattern. Uh, Paul talks about it earlier in the book of Romans, chapter one. Verse 21 to 25, he says, although they, just kind of the people of the world, they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave their hearts to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they actually became fools because they exchanged the glory for the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. He kind of released them to kind of pursue their pleasures in whatever way. And, and they ex- because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. That's the important statement. What was the problem? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And instead of worshiping the creator, instead of worshiping God, they started worshiping the things that God had made. So not only is he saying everything is spiritual, 
Paul is saying, when he says, don't conform to the pattern of the world, he's saying everyone worships something. I mean, we're worshiping here, but, but people out there, no matter where they are, they're worshiping something too. The world, he says, is full of worship. Everyone is a worshiper. The question is, what are you worshiping? What do you assign the greatest worth to? Everyone finds greatest worth in something. Everyone finds their deepest delight and satisfaction in something and someone. So there's this pattern in this world that we live in. I mean, the world's trying to squeeze us into its mold, find, finding highest worth in what? What is the pattern of the world? Finding highest worth in family? In the kids, maybe finding highest worth in romantic relationships, highest worth in, 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 in work, profession, money, possessions, finding highest worth in our pleasure and our recreation. What is it? John says, uh, the Apostle John, at the end of his first letter, 1 John 5, uh, verse 21 He closes his letter with these words. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And we read that and we think, well, check. You ever worshipped an idol? I haven't. I I, I got no little Buddha in my home whose belly I rub. I don't got got no shrine with with incense going up to some ancestors or other spirits. I'm not an idol worshipper. I know people that do worship idols. I remember as a teenager, I took a trip to Mongolia, and uh, you know the culture is full of superstitions, and they had temples and idols that they would worship. And one of the superstitions that they had was, um, in in order to, I guess, placate the spirits out there, um, at the intersection of every road there was a pile of rocks, and. In order to curry the favor of the spirits, they would, every time you walked by it, you would add a rock to the pile. It had to do, and then you had to walk around it a certain amount of times in a certain direction. You couldn't go the wrong way. That made them angry. But you went, you went a certain way, you added a rock, and if you really wanted the favor of, of the powers that be, then you, then you added a little gift on there. So often you'd find uh, cigarettes stuck in the cracks. Because what's more valuable than a cigarette, right? Like that is a sacrifice. When you give up a cigarette? So that's when I smoked my first cigarette. My very first cigarette, 15 years old. I pulled one off the pile and I smoked my first cigarette in Mongolia. And it was my first and my last. I didn't, it just didn't take to it. But put all sorts of stuff in there. Money, coins, little bills, offerings to the gods. I thought, what a waste. Why would they do this? What difference do they think it makes? And so I collected the money from all the cracks. And I put it in a bag and I brought it to the church in Mongolia the next Sunday. I said, this, this is for Jesus. Jesus can make better use of this. I hope no one saw that. Um, anyway, all the superstition. I thought, idol worshipers. You know what, John, he's not talking about bowing down to little statues or doing stuff like that. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to you and us. He's saying, guys, be careful that you keep your lives free of idols. He's not talking about little metal figurines. What is he talking about? He's talking about anything in our lives that, that replaces God at the top as the thing, the one in which we find highest worth and value. And it can be anything. 
An idol is something that's more important than God. It, it's, it's not, idolatry isn't a rejection of God. It's, it's more of a replacement of God with something else. And idolatry is the issue. It's not just an issue. Idolatry is the issue that leads to all other issues. That's why he says, keep your lives free from idolatry. Don't worship anything else. You know, the, the first of the Ten Commandments was, you shall have no other God before me. Man, if you could perfectly keep that commandment, you wouldn't need the other nine. You wouldn't need any other commandments. You wouldn't need to be told not to steal from your neighbor because you wouldn't worship money. You would find your worth in God. You wouldn't covet your neighbor's spouse. You wouldn't need to be told all of that if you could just keep the one, the first commandment to have no other God before me. That's why Jesus says, hey, the greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. If you can do that, then you don't need to hear anything else. If we can just keep God in the right place, if we can treasure him as of highest worth. So there's only two ways to live, Paul says, a life of worship or a life of idolatry. And the world is, has a pattern of worshiping other things, finding greatest worth in other things. And, and, and unbeknownst to us, the world is trying to squeeze us into that pattern. And so he says, be careful. Don't conform to that pattern around you. Don't exchange worship of God for worship of anything else, the created thing. How do you know what you worship? Well, there's a few questions that might kind of reveal in us if what it is that we find greatest worth in, what we treasure the most. Some of these questions come from uh, a study by Kyle Eidelman, maybe some of you have done in your small group. What do you complain about the most? What most disappoints you? What is your greatest fear? What do you dream about? What makes you the most happy? You can think of those questions and, and, and find the answers. It, it's going to say a lot about where you find your highest worth. I mean, if you look at that and you go, money, financial security, getting a raise at work, fear of debt, you might just have money as your idol. It could be anything, but if we ask ourselves those questions, it will reveal any idols in our heart. There are many things that are vying for God's place as the highest value. And so the question that, you know, Paul would have us ask, and I, you know, I want us to, to ponder and bring home is, is there anything that's vying for the highest place in your life? Anything that's vying for God's place as a thing of greatest worth to you? I wonder if some of us maybe don't have idols after all. And this is the thing, every idol in your life, um, if you fail it, it'll, it'll never forgive you. And if you get it, it'll never satisfy you. Every idol in your life makes a bad God. It will not satisfy you. It will not give you a second chance. It will not give you certainty and hope for the future. It will not. Every idol makes a bad God. And that's why Paul, 
um, coming back to, let me see if I've got those verses up there. When he says true and proper worship at the end of verse one, he's translating a word that the translator's not really sure how to translate it. So different versions say different things. What does your version say? Anyone else have your Bible open? Anyone else have a different word? Spiritual, this is your spiritual worship. Anyone else have a different word? Some of yours might say reasonable worship. True and proper, that just translates one word. It's the Greek word logican. 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 What does that sound like? What do you think comes from that word? Any guesses? Logic. Saying, literally saying, this is your logical worship. The reasonable thing to do is to serve and to worship God, to treasure God as of highest worth in your life. Why? Why should we offer ourselves to God to live to please him? Is it out of fear? You better do this or else you better please God. That's only reasonable because if you don't, look out. Does that come from fear? No. He says, this doesn't proceed, this worship does not and cannot proceed from an attitude of fear. It, he shows us it comes from an attitude of gratitude. Look what he says. Therefore, in other words, okay, given what, all that I've just said, this is, this is how you should respond. What has he just said? Therefore. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... That's what he's been talking about for the first 11 chapters of Romans. He's been talking about the mercy of God. He's given a detailed description of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter three, he talked about how all of us have turned away from God in our own sin. We have pursued other things, other gods. All of us have fallen short of God's standards, Romans chapter three. But in Romans chapter five, he says, but God, because he loves you, he demonstrated his love for you that while you were a sinner, he died for you. He sent his son Jesus and he laid down his life for you. That's how much he loves you. And then in Romans chapter 10, he says that if anyone would confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they would be saved. Their sins would be forgiven and they would be brought into right relationship with God and they would be given the gift of eternal life by trusting in what Jesus had done on their behalf, Romans chapter 10. And so you have in Romans 8 verse one, just a, just a great word. One of my favorite verses, Romans 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who have put their faith in Jesus and received the gift of forgiveness and the gift of life, there is no condemnation left. You fully and completely have the love and the approval and the pleasure of God through Jesus Christ. He says, in view of God's mercy and all he has done and is to you. You know, I, I was um, thinking about this with respect to baseball. It's baseball season, so my mind's on baseball. But my dad raised me to like baseball. My name, Rusty, uh, is actually my name. It wasn't given to me by some bully in grade school. It was actually given to me by my parents, believe it or not. Rusty Staub was the first baseman for the Montreal Expos. 
in the early 80s. So I was named in honor of Rusty Staub, first baseman for the Expos. Before I left the hospital, after I was born, the very first thing that got put into my hands was a little wooden baseball bat by my dad. So with this big, got a picture of it. Man, I, I, I grew up, I just countless hours of taking ground balls from my dad. He, he would just throw a ball to my left or to my right, and I'd chase it down, and, he, and he'd throw pop flies up to me hours in the park, baseball, and, and he was my coach. Um, he, he was at every game, which I, I, I didn't realize how amazing that was back then. Now I'm a pastor, and I realize life is busy, and I, 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 I man, I can't believe my dad was always at my games. Um, but one of my greatest memories, I don't know, I might have been seven. My dad was my parent pitch coach, and um, he threw the ball to me, and I hit a line, live dr- line drive that hit him right in the groin, and he fell down in pain and agony and just rolled on the grit. It is still one of my greatest, proudest moments to this day. <laughs> it just, it's seared into my memory. It brings me pleasure every time I, I, I think of that. But you know, my dad, he just spent countless hours doing baseball with me, raising me up like that. And you know, when I went to a game and he was always watching the game, never once did I ever have to fear like it, if, 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 I, if I messed up, if I didn't follow his instruction, if I struck out, if I didn't play well, like somehow my dad was gonna be displeased with me because I knew I, I, I had my dad's full love and acceptance and pleasure and I knew I could never lose that. So when I went up to bat, I didn't think, well, it doesn't really matter. He's going to love me one way or the other. Doesn't, I don't care. No, I wanted to hit the home run. Never did. One. I think I hit one. I wanted to do my best. Why? Not to try to secure my dad's love or, or his favor, his approval, because I, 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 th- that would be selfish to try to, to try to earn that for me. That's not Why? I, I, I wanted to play my best to please my father because of the greatness of his love and his approval and his pleasure in me. I just wanted to bring my dad pleasure. I think that's what Paul's talking about. It's like, guys, God, the greatness of his mercy, you know, in view of that, in view of, of the completeness of his love and his approval, and his pleasure in you, in view of that, the only reasonable thing to do, the only reasonable thing is to offer your whole selves in worship to him to please your father. God's approval liberates us to live in a way which God approves of. We long to please God because he is pleased already in us. So worship has the glory of God as its goal, but Paul says the motive for our worship isn't fear. The motive of our worship is God's mercy. Once you have a view of God's mercy, anything less, Paul says, than just kind of whole life worship is irrational. It falls short. It doesn't satisfy. If we lack pleasure, it's... it's, if we lack pleasure in God, it's, it's, it's because of a failure to contemplate God's mercies towards us. We need to be reminding ourselves of the greatness of his mercy 
all the time. I think that's what he means when he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Constantly have in view the greatness of God's mercy for you, and that will transform your life so that now your whole life will become worship to God. You won't worship work, you will worship with your work. You won't worship your kids, you will worship by parenting. You won't worship your spouse or romantic relationships, you will worship through your marriage. You won't worship money, you're gonna worship God with your money. It'll transform the way you live. You will live lives of worship when you have in view constantly God's mercy for you. So over these next five weeks in this series, we're gonna look at what it means to to worship in the various areas of our lives. Um, And we're gonna find that worshiping God, not only is it right, but it's good. I don't know if you picked up on that, but he uses the word pleasure twice. He says, lead lives that are pleasing to God, and then he ends by saying, and God's will for you is pleasing. The pleasure goes both ways. When we live for the pleasure of God, we experience deepest pleasure in the will of God for our lives as well. Worship is the path to a pleasing life. As we take this home here, a few questions I want to put to you and um, we'll take a moment to pray. What vies for God's place in your life? Any idols that are trying to crowd out God's place as, as that of greatest value, greatest worth in your life? Conforming in any way to the pattern of the world, what vies for God's place in your life? How can you use whatever that is, instead for God's glory. I want you to think on that, pray about that. How will you keep God's mercies in view through this next week? Because that's key to worship, always having in view the mercy of God for us. I want to take a moment for us to, to, to do some of that praying right now. You can bow your head and um, close your eyes if you like. <clears throat> You know, I, I, I don't know, we, we don't have any offering plates to stand in here, but, but if you're someone this morning and you've heard this word and you, um, and you just know that you have not been living your life um, in worship of God, maybe there's some idol that you know is in your life that's taken God's rightful place that you've been cherishing more than God. As we pray here together, um, if there's, Anyone here who feels that way, um, just as an act of offering yourselves up to God, um, your whole selves as a living sacrifice to him, uh, maybe you just want to stand. Maybe you want to stand as we pray and just say, God, I want to put you back at the top. I offer my whole self to you again. I want my whole life to be worship. And if, if that's you, uh, if you just kind of want to cast down any idol in your life, um, one way you can do that is just to, as we pray here, just to stand and acknowledge that before God. So let's pray together. Just, t- just take the first moment and um, just thank God for his mercy. Thank God that, 
that he has done it all for you through Jesus Christ, that through Jesus, you have God's total love, total approval, total pleasure, and that you don't gotta work out of fear to try to secure that, but it's already just freely given. That's awesome. Just take a moment to thank God for the greatness of his mercy shown you through Jesus. Say to God, God, is there any idol in my life, anything that's vying for your rightful place? Lord, if there's any idol that's there, anyway, I've been conforming to the pattern of the world, Lord, I just cast that idol down now. And God, I just install you back at the top. You are of greatest worth to me. I offer my whole self to you again. Just take a moment to express that to God.